If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards. The content of Dark Arenas includes topics and subject matter that may not be suitable for all audiences. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of AudioChuck or its employees. Information discussed by the host and interviewees includes content related to crimes against children, abuse, acts of terrorism, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Doctors have a medical obligation, an oath, to do everything that they can to care for a patient and save their life. They work to figure out what's going on inside the body and determine the best course of action to treat it. But there are some doctors who only show up after a person dies. They're called upon to dissect death, to deem whether a person's demise was a mishap or purposeful. In today's episode, I'm taking you into the dark arena of forensic anthropology. That's the moment that I met Dr. Heather Walsh Haney on a weekday morning at her office on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University. I'd driven on paved roads to get into the parking deck outside of her lab building, but on my way, I noticed that all around me, just a few feet from the asphalt surface, the landscape was swamp. Hot, humid, bubbling patches of water with thick vegetation, tall grass, snakes, alligators, and mud. The university itself has sleek state-of-the-art buildings, but the campus is in South Florida, so wild nature is never far from anyone's front door. The air conditioning inside of Heather's office was sweet relief. Yeah, so let me come up with you. We'll just go right up. Cool. We walked from her office to her forensics lab, and once we crossed the threshold, I was immediately hit with the distinct smell of formaldehyde, or some kind of strong chemical I could only assume was preserving tissues or specimens inside. Between a few tables, there were racks of neatly organized bones and shelves full of books. Most of them were about anatomy, insects, and the deterioration of the human body. A few industrial-grade refrigerators buzzed idly along the walls, and a couple of graduate students began to wrap up their work, and they scurried out as Heather and I sat down. We took our seats on lab stools and started talking. What I quickly learned about Heather is that her calling to be a forensic anthropologist came early on in her life. With my first anthropology class, I was blown away by the topic, and I knew that I'd found what I wanted to do. Heather's line of work is specific, 
and the importance of her role can morph depending on the death scenes she's called to and the agency she's operating with. The forensic anthropologist is someone who focuses on reading bones to tease out who that person was in life, what may have happened to them as part of the death scenario, and when they may have died. So we're um, reading bones in a way that a pathologist who is a medical doctor, and in Florida and many states, we have forensic pathologists who have passed another board that is specific to forensic issues. They're, those are medical doctors. And it's been my experience, especially in Florida, where we have a medical examiner system, is that the forensic anthropologist is called in as a consultant for the forensic pathologist or medical examiner. So typically I'm called in when there might be someone who is who has passed, who has unusual traumatic injuries, and the injuries impacted bone. And they may look as though a paramedic could wake them immediately if the injuries were, were healed, but my job is to go in and help the medical examiner understand uh, this is a serrated knife that impacted a rib. This is blunt force trauma to the head. This is a gunshot wound to the leg despite you know, the absence of bullet wipe or other little pieces of metal that we tend to think mark gunshot entrances and exits. So I'll be called in for fresh cases. I'm called in to help medical examiners when they have skeletonized remains and they need an analysis of what ancestry or the person might be, whether they're male or female, how tall they were, what is unique to that skeleton or to the teeth that might pop up in medical records or in dental x-rays and records that will help us compare that person to who maybe they think it is to establish a positive ID. So Heather isn't the doctor who rules on a cause of death. She's just a heavily relied upon scientific consultant for medical examiners or pathologists. Very heavily relied upon. On a slow year, I have done, when I was first starting out, between uh, maybe 60 and 70 cases. And then it just sort of blossomed from there. A hundred is a lot. And I've gone as high as about 130 remains cases per year. Heather has trudged through environments all over the world looking for and identifying human remains. Sometimes it's plane crash victims. Other times it's when rural areas turn urban and construction workers building subdivisions and strip malls unearth mass graves. Do you think that people would be surprised how many mass graves are in North America? I would. Heather couldn't put an exact number on how many mass grave discoveries she's been called to in her career, but it's somewhere in the ballpark of thousands of bodies or remains. In your experience with those types of cases, what is the common cause of death, if there even is a common cause of death, in large mass grave burial sites? Usually it's gunshot, uh, gunshot to the, to the back of the head or to the body. In addition to people found dead on land, she's also pulled corpses from watery graves as well. Most often in the United States, it's in Florida. You know, with our huge coastline and all the estuaries and lakes and cenotes or ponds that we have here, the other type of case that I deal with quite a bit is underwater casework or remains that have been uh, washed up on the shoreline. And so, you know, that's something that, you know, perhaps a lot of other states they don't have. 
my colleagues and friends who are up north, they're not going to have the caseload that we have here because the cold weather works to preserve the environment. Of course, they'll have a lot more cases that involve bear <laughs> scavenging, uh, whereas I get very little of it here. Florida in particular is a rich state for folks who want to study forensic anthropology. And the reason is our temperature and our climate. If you pass away outside and there's no one there to call authorities immediately, you will molder and decompose to skeletonized remains within days. She says one thing people don't realize is that human remains, in one way or another, end up in every kind of area you can think of. Really what happens is the places that we die are very much the same places where we live. And we live in both very bright light and in darkness. And so how we live is how we die. We go out on trails and we go in the woods and we go in water and we, you know, we've explored, all of us perhaps as children, maybe not adults, but explored empty houses and, you know, looked at antique cars and gone into storage lockers and, you know, been into the brightest, most beautiful homes and people die there. Little do they know that folks are dying all around them all the time. And whether it's the house next door or the backyard, where we live is also where we die. It's a dark thought, made even darker by the fact that she's seen firsthand death doesn't discriminate. Well, I've had victims of crime from infancy all the way up to elders in their 90s and hundreds who are killed or left unattended by their caregivers and everything in between people in their prime who you'd think could fight off any attacker to people who had no idea that something horrific was going to happen to them. Heather's years of experience, expertise, and her knowledge of studying the dead have attracted attention even from Hollywood. I have been consulted for shows like uh, CSI and for the show Bones. And I have been contacted by writers in those shows who have a, a scenario and they want to talk about uh, have their characters discuss or find evidence that covers damage to bones, whether it was, you know, how quickly someone will skeletonize in a beach environment versus um, what kinds of trauma can be seen on bones. I mean, in the end, the shows are art, but I really respected how the process worked as far as the integrity of the writers, because it struck me that they understood that we tend to, lay people tend to look for those shows uh, for some information on science, even though that's grounded in fiction. And, and these writers were trying to bring real science to those shows. I've also had writers for movies, some in production, contact me about their fact patterns and not only what a forensic anthropologist would experience, but even my interpretation of law enforcement and when they get involved in different types of cases that involve skeletal remains. Before I got too far into our interview, I wanted Heather to answer one simple question for me. When was the first time you saw a dead human body and thought, how did they die? The first time I saw dead human remains was actually in McDonough, Georgia. My father was a sheriff's deputy there. 
and um, he was working on a suicide case. He had left his pictures out on a table and my brother Sean and I just started going through them. And neither one of us were shocked by what we had seen. And when my, my father came back into the room and realized that we had gotten into his papers, uh, you know, talked us through what had happened and I never really thought about it again. The next time that she'd think about death was at her grandmother's funeral. All of my cousins and family members, we lined up to say our goodbyes to her and we were all giving her kisses on her cheek and telling her how much we loved her. And I stepped back from actually giving her a kiss and uh, just went on my way back to my seat. And that was about the closest I'd ever gotten to anyone who had passed. But, um, uh, but yeah, that was really the first time. And actually, I always had a fear of death and dying all throughout my life. And uh, it certainly wasn't something that I thought I was going to be a part of was the death scenario, family members who are in grief and dealing with the dead. I didn't know that that would be something that I would excel at. Heather mentioned her fear of death, which I found kind of surprising. But really, it's something a lot of us, even though some of us won't admit it, we can find ourselves dwelling on, maybe even obsessing over. Heather says that she's reminded of the inevitability of death every day, both professionally and personally. Both of my, my brothers died young because of the Iraq war. And in each instance, um, you know, my family asked me to find out exactly what happened. We want to know what happened. And that, that information was giving them solace. Not everyone is like that, of course, but um, my own personal experiences, yes, I would, I would want to know what the, the series of events was that led up to the death, whether natural suicide, homicide, or in war. My brother, uh, Nicholas Rudolph Walsh, was a sergeant in the Marine Corps, and he died in the Anbar province of the Iraq War early on. He was shot in the neck by a sniper. And then my brother, Sean, died at the Army Base Fort Drum from partial suspension hanging. I think about them constantly. Uh, yeah. And it, some of it inspired some of my work, too, so that I could understand those mechanisms of injury a little more clearly. So while I miss my brothers and I think about them every day, I've tried to use some of that to help me help others. Helping others... That's Heather's way of pushing through being consumed by the fear of death. She got her first chance to do that in the aftermath of one of the biggest national tragedies in American history. I never consciously thought that this was a way I was giving back until 9-11. Do you want to set your child up for success? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. Now, my little guy is still young, but I can already tell that integrating fun ways to learn is going to be a game changer for him. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. There's one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids can even access IXL on the go through the app or your phone or tablet. 
No more trying to figure out how to explain math equations or grammar rules yourself. IXL has built-in explanation videos. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Dark Arena's listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com arenas. Visit IXL.com arenas to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. When it comes to learning a new language, which is something that's a passion of mine, because, hey, I'm in the field of communication. I can't help but love language. But what I really want most is a software or a program that I can trust. I want to make sure that what I'm paying for, I'm actually going to be able to use in the real world. And that's why I love Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone has been trusted for 30 years with millions of users, and there are 25 languages offered. 25. I'm currently brushing up on my French because I learned it pretty well a couple of years ago, but I've gotten away from it. And one of my favorite things about the app is that true accent feature where you get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. And when it comes to a language like French, I obviously want to make sure I'm doing the accent right. So whether you're traveling abroad or trying to break down a communication barrier with a new friend, Rosetta Stone is something you should look into because you don't want to put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Arena's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com arenas. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash arenas. When you look at the timeline of modern American history, I think it's fair to say that one of the darkest jobs in the aftermath of the World Trade Center terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001, was being someone who had to pick through the rubble. Got an explosion inside... The building is exploding right now. You got people running up the street. Okay. I don't know what's going on. Two planes, one hitting each of the twin towers at the World Trade Center. In the room where we were meeting, there was a very large TV screen. And we, Dr. Falsetti, Tony and I, saw a broadcast of the plane hitting the, the towers. And it seemed surreal. It was, you know, all of us trying to calibrate our eye to figure out, was that a Cessna that hit the plane or was that a jet? And right away, uh, Tony had said that that's a passenger liner. And sure enough, by about five o'clock that night, I received my orders that, you know, came directly from President Bush. At that time, he had gone on TV and he had announced that he had specially trained members of the forensic science and mortuary communities who would be going to the various locations. Heather was in one of the first groups of responding forensic anthropologists sent to Ground Zero. She and her team made their way up the eastern seaboard from Florida, and they were stationed in Manhattan for weeks. When uh, I responded to 9-11, when I realized I had to leave, you know, my husband and go up with our DMORT team up to New York as we passed by the Pentagon, I realized I had a special skill set and I was able to help. It felt what I believe may be akin to someone getting, uh, a soldier getting ready to go to war. I knew that I had 
special tools. I had with me all the instruments I needed and my mind that had been trained and that it was scary. There weren't people on the interstates, very few. And we were driving, you know, past the Pentagon that was smoking onto New York City, which was basically a war zone. What was estimated to take weeks turned into months. The size and scale of this recovery was something that I wasn't prepared for and that indeed none of us spoke about. As material was being transferred to the landfill, we were to go through that material and identify anything that might yield DNA so that the DNA labs could then move into identifications or any quote-unquote biological material that could be used to establish a positive ID for maybe dental records or from x-ray records. And so that's, that's where we were. I don't know if it's a protective mechanism, but while I was working, it was such strenuous work. And remember, there's, you know, smoking, debris everywhere, particulates flying through the air. Heck, we didn't even have masks at that point. It was also very new. You're, I was focused on getting the job done and making sure when I got home that I ate well and rested so that I could get up again and repeat the process. And I, I didn't really think about that there would be unidentified victims. My, my hope was and my mission was get as much as we can so that we can identify everyone. It, I didn't let myself consider that there would be loved ones that wouldn't be accounted for. I felt that if we all worked hard enough, certainly we'd be able to identify everybody. And uh, that's, that's where I was throughout the mission, was that we would all work hard enough and the science would be there to identify everyone. But unfortunately, that didn't happen. It couldn't happen. The sheer volume of debris and catastrophic damage left behind in the wake of 9-11 made it impossible to definitively connect physical remains or biological evidence to every single person who died that day. Heather says the moment that she realized how significant this truth was, was when members of the public or first responders who were missing colleagues personally brought her and her team items from Ground Zero. They were looking for their friends. They were looking for their brothers and sisters. And uh, they came in every day. We were restricted and working, I think, 10-hour shifts. And it was impossible to get them to change shifts. Like, we really, there was a lot of pressure on them to get them to leave so everyone could stay healthy, who could work and come back. They just wanted to keep on working. And in one instance, there was a firefighter who brought... uh, an object, I don't remember now if it was a fire code or um, a name tag or even if it was what he thought was biological material, but you know, he kept asking us, is it him, is it him? And my colleague, uh, Mike Warren, who had previously been a paramedic, just took the object, whatever it was, and said, it's him, you know, go on, everything's gonna be fine, it's him, and just took that material and put it on a table, photographed it, and we went on. That story made me pause. I put myself in Heather's shoes for a minute. Imagine working in the heat of ground zero, and day after day, people are coming to you with items, shreds of clothing, or badges, asking if somehow you can identify it as belonging to a specific person. Not being able to give them an answer, but doing so anyway 
just to give them peace was a tough job. But Heather did it, and so did many other people coming through the rubble week in and week out. During this hard work, Heather's meticulous note-taking and categorizing items became a foundation for the United States Department of Homeland Security. That agency was created in November 2002. Heather is one of its founding members. Everyone who was part of that team was created as a founding member. And I don't know what conversations happened. I didn't have to send anything in to prove myself. Of course, they'd already vetted me to become a demort anyway, but that was a happy, a happy outcome of events to be part of that agency. Her involvement helping to establish Homeland Security would prove to be a useful experience because in just a few short years, the federal government would once again call upon Heather for a mass casualty event, one that everyone saw coming, but few were prepared for. Early Sunday morning, Katrina had built into a dangerous Category 5 hurricane barreling towards New Orleans. We are dealing with one of the worst natural disasters in our nation's history. According to the National Weather Service, on August 23, 2005, a subtropical depression formed over the Bahamas. It quickly became a Category 1 hurricane and skirted the coast of South Florida. It died down, but as soon as it passed over the Florida Peninsula and whipped into the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico, it intensified rapidly. The weather event became the raging Category 5 hurricane known as Katrina. On August 28, its 125-mile-per-hour winds slammed into New Orleans, Louisiana, and with it came massive amounts of flooding across the Gulf and Mississippi Delta regions. By August 31, 80% of New Orleans was under floodwaters due to rainfall and major breaches in the levees. A lot of flooding also came from Lake Pontchartrain. In total, 1,833 people were said to have died from the storm, most of them by drowning. One of the first people on the ground tasked with finding and identifying the dead was Heather. I was shocked from the moment I was transported from the airport to our staging area where we were staying in tents, uh, that there were cars in trees, boats in trees, dead cattle in trees. And that was all a layperson would have seen those same horrific sights just living in the area. And then when we were actually out walking areas and searching, what I was most shocked by is that most of the homes had an indicator on them that suggested, that told the responders that there was a dead person inside, that first responders had gotten in there and had already identified which houses the demort teams or the, the mass fatality responders would be going into to help collect the remains and bring them to the morgues. Um, the other thing that I remember is just, you know, the mosquitoes and knowing that these thick, dense clouds of mosquitoes that would almost look like you were just diving into shrubs. They were so thick that folks 
you know, couldn't really leave where they were living and they were stuck in inhospitable environments just trying to get it get through without access to fresh water, electricity, food, and then, you know, being eaten alive by mosquitoes. I was walking the landscapes looking for human remains. And those human remains, when we were deployed there, very rarely did we have intact remains. They were mostly skeletonized. And then on top of that, they tended to be disinterred from cemeteries, where the weather event had literally exhumed them. Why are natural disasters so harsh on the human body in an event like Katrina? I mean, there are just so many variables. When I've had cases that we've attributed to human loss around the time of a hurricane, I'm thinking of Florida hurricanes, it's been that we have found body parts that are so much further away than we'd ever expected for the rest of the main cache of the remains. And it's really, you know, part of my job working with law enforcement and the medical examiner to try to figure out how far our search parameters need to go. And in these instances where I've come in after a hurricane, it just seems like the perimeters are constantly expanding. Katrina wasn't the first major natural disaster Heather worked, and it's far from the last. In the 15 years since sloshing through streets turned into creeks and seeing corpses cover one of the most vibrant cities in the American South, Heather's caseload has expanded, and it's actually veered quite often into one of the darkest sides of forensic anthropology, an area most true crime followers and myself are always intrigued to learn more about. Have you ever worked on, to your knowledge, a serial killer case? Oh, a lot of them. I've worked a lot of serial killer cases. And uh, at the time, uh, sometimes we don't realize, uh, as I'm evaluating the trauma and the remains, uh, the person might be unidentified, and the real nuts and bolts of the investigation from law enforcement hasn't gone the direction of tying it to yet another death. There can be times when I might see a case in one jurisdiction, and I go to another, and I realize, ah, these are probably connected. This part of our interview was a subject I had a lot of questions about. I wondered what it must be like to see signs or signatures on a body or a set of human remains that a serial killer is operating and make that connection before police even connect the dots. Heather name-dropped a few iconic killers and victims that she's consulted on. I think some of the Elaine Warnos' victims came through the lab I've had a case where the victims were linked to the hog trail killer. The hog trail killer that she mentioned is one I knew about just because of where I've lived. It's the case of Daniel Conahan Jr., who is now a convicted murderer. Law enforcement agencies in Southwest Florida have tied Conahan to at least six murders of men between 1994 and 1996. He was sentenced to death in 1999. Conahan brutally bound, tortured, mutilated, and murdered young adult men in rural stretches of woods where hogs would often root up the earth around the victims' bodies. Thus, he got the name the Hog Trail Killer. His story is one that Ashley Flowers dives more into in an episode of Crime Junkie, so I won't go too far into it here. But Heather told me that in that case, and in many other cases, she's been able to identify telltale signs in the victim's remains that a serial perpetrator was operating. 
What are some of those markers on a victim that can indicate serial killing behavior that if you were to come across them would maybe put a red flag in your mind that perhaps this is some type of signature where I think the connection starts to be made is not necessarily what the bones show, because let's say the killer happens to kill females between, you know, 25 and 35, and all of those deaths are through manual strangulation, and they're found near railroad tracks. I may put something together like that because I consult for so many jurisdictions. You know, I may say to the medical examiner, to law enforcement, oh, you know, I had a case like that in in Martin County last year. So that sort of communication pops up. But in general, what I tend to see is that, you know, people tend to kill each other in predictable ways. You know, it's sharp force gunshot wound, blunt force trauma, manual strangulation, ligature strangulation. And I don't know if just looking at those patterns of injuries, I myself would ever be able to recognize that this victim was related to a larger serial killer. Where I tend to see cases start becoming linked together, for me, tends to do more with a dismemberment where a person has tried to get rid of all of the lines of evidence that would help us identify this victim and would help us identify the trauma. So when that bad guy or gal is found, you know, the story is full of the information that's necessary to put that person behind bars or exonerate the person if they've been falsely accused. Sometimes Heather says that she has suspicions a series of victims might all be tied to a serial killer, but she has to sit on that information. She isn't a law enforcement investigator, so she only sees one part of the big picture. And it's the police's job to take her findings, evaluate them, and compare the information to the other evidence in their case that may prove that Heather's theory is correct. When I'm conducting my observations, A lot of what I'm doing is quote-unquote in the blind so that I I don't know all the information law enforcement has. I don't know all the information that the medical examiner has at the time that I'm called in with my special skill set. So it's much later on that I tend to find out, you know, that certain acts were connected. Our interstates tend to be highways where folks will try to get rid of their evidence by pulling over and walking into the woods and throwing a gun out or other other types of evidence as they move from one tip of the state to the other. And because I consult for many jurisdictions, I might find, you know, this evidence of dismemberment in one county and then just by happenstance be called in a few weeks later to another county and then you know, I may be able to say, aha, this is very similar to what I happen to see in, you know, a county that's, you know, two hours north of you. And, you know, that kind of brings those jurisdictions together. And then they'll may say, well, horrible crime is happening in both our counties and they're unrelated. But I have had instances where the cases end up being related. Heather says a big challenge for a lot of cases is when nature and the environment work against her. 
If a serial killer or any murderer leaves a body outside and then years pass, there can be a short window of time for her to get definitive answers about who they were and how they died. The remains and clues as to whether the person was murdered can be consumed by the elements. Often there are multiple types of trauma, and the trauma might overlay one another. And then you have somebody who's been left um, inside or outside, and we have scavenging damage that also, you know, may damage the areas where the true keys to the trauma are. There's one specific tool she keeps handy, though, when she gets the sense that little of a person is going to be left. Ground-penetrating radar. In your work, how often do you utilize ground-penetrating radar or are involved in a process that does that? And what are those scenarios where that's really called in for? Last year, we had 15 field recoveries. And I think on three of them, we used the ground-penetrating radar. Usually what happens in those instances is law enforcement has said that there's a confidential informant who has said that while he or she didn't participate in the burial or killing of this person, they know where the burial is. And law enforcement will usually send me aerial photos from around the, the time of the disappearance, before, during, after, and today. And we make a plan about how the terrain, how much ground cover is there, how easy would it be to bring the instrument in, because there has to be a clear path that I can actually run the instrument down these corridors to take readings. It detects subsurface changes in soil density, and it produces, through software, a parabola, an arc shape. And what we do is we calibrate the machine in an area where we expect that there will be, you know, no disturbance. And then we create alleys where we run the machine back and forth and get our readings to figure out at certain depths where we see an anomaly. And then what happens is we'll flag those anomalies and then we really have to do what I call ground truth it. And that is that we pull out our trowels and we our Munsell soil cards, which are these books that help us calibrate the color of the soil. And we start digging to expose what's underneath what the instrument has detected. Sometimes it's old rotted tree stumps. Other times it's old pieces of plumbing that somebody decided to get rid of their garbage. Sometimes it's a, it's a grave. Have you had a case in your career where ground penetrating radar actually resulted in the discovery of remains that were a homicide or a missing persons case? I have. My, um, however, until recently, that was through bringing in um, corporations who would run the GPR for me. I've only had my own um, GPR for about five years. So before that, we had, we had several cases that resulted in locating a clandestine grave, yep. Were any of those cases proven to be homicides? And I believe in each instance they were a homicide. The soil then is forever changed, and you may still see differences in the soil, in the density of the soil, that suggest to us that a grave was there, even perhaps the bones may no longer be. 
But even as good as this technology is, and when done right, how successful its results are, for Heather, the homicide cases that she remembers forever required her to go back to the very basics of her job. Those cases required that she sit in a lab, run her hands in microscope over broken bones, and answer the age-old questions of who, how, when, and where. The why she has to leave in the hands of law enforcement. There were two boys in, the, in Bermuda that was one of the first cases that I did independently on my own, and that they were the, the Cooper twins. They were in their late teens, and one of their friends had thought, oh, that they had disparaged somebody's parent. And they all got angry at these twins and invited them to a party where they beat them to death and then threw them over a cliff. And certainly those two boys had no idea what they were walking into. And, uh, you know, it was my job to, to help establish time since death and help ferret out differences between blunt force impact from a bat or um, changes related to their falls. So, you know, that was certainly horrible. Her story of how she dissected the death of these two young boys was an experience that she remembered and recounted with clear detail in our interview, like it had happened yesterday. Heather has been in her line of work for decades now, but it's this case that's the one that still sits in the forefront of her mind. That's a case that always stunned me because we all think about people we're close to and friends, not just our own and our own family, but when you're young like that, friends are everything. And uh, here they were invited to a home for a party to never, never leave uh, alive. These victims had an impact on Heather because she's a mother herself. Their mother, after I had testified at the Superior Court in Bermuda, which is the British court, everybody wears wigs co-counsels or opposing counsels are their learned colleagues. Uh, the mother came up to me after I left court with the Attorney General of Bermuda and said that she wanted to donate her son's remains to Florida Gulf Coast University so that I could specifically keep training people so that uh, her sons could help my students learn how to catch bad guys and the perpetrators of crimes. Seeing victims as more than just human remains that have to be studied is Heather's way of coping with so much exposure to death. She reminds herself that the bodies and remains that she examines are someone's loved ones. They are someone's child, wife, husband, son, mother, daughter. And if she can give them a face, a name, and provide answers as to what happened to them, then her work is worth the while, even though it may be dark. This episode of Dark Arenas was written and produced by Delia D'Ambra, with writing assistance from executive producer Ashley Flowers. You can find pictures and all of the source material for this episode on our website, darkarenas.com. Dark Arenas is an Audio Chuck original show. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? 